Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. Well, look with me at Matthew 5. We're in the series called Resurrection Community, and we're talking about Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And as we talk about the Sermon on the Mount, uh, this is a single sermon that Jesus preached, and we are, uh, what Jesus was able to do in a couple chapters, we're going to have to do over several months, because we're a little slow, and so it takes us a little while to get there. Um, but I have a question for you as you're turning to Matthew 5. We're going to look at just four verses, Matthew 5, 17 to 20 today. Um, and then we're going to come to a verse, but let me ask you a question as we start. How many of you want to go to heaven? Some of you didn't raise your hand, which makes me uncomfortable. I mean, these lights are bright. I can't see very well, but if you didn't raise your hand, I'm not sure why you're here. Uh, you might as well go on home because uh, you apparently don't have any concerns about that. But here's the thing. When we're going we're gonna to look at a verse today, and Jesus says, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Uh, that if you're going to, in, in order to go to heaven, your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the religious people of the day. There's a book uh, that we give away to uh, those who have dedicated children up here, and it's a little uh, Bible, and it's written by a lady named Sally Lloyd-Jones, and she calls the scribes and the Pharisees uh, the, the extra super holy people. And that really is the, who Jesus is talking about. In fact, in this verses that we're going to look at, Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds, surpasses, goes beyond the extra super holy people, you can't go to heaven. Any of you get uncomfortable when you hear that? Because I, I think in that day, they got uncomfortable. I think when Jesus said that, they all stepped back and went, whoa, these are the most serious religious dudes that are devoted to the law, and they are doing everything they can to follow the law exactly. In fact, they even tithe, not just of their money, and even find it hard, find it hard to keep 10% aside from money. They didn't just do their money, they actually tithe even their spices. Like, they got the spice, they take 10% by the church, like, I want to make sure, I, you know, everything I tithe. These guys were down to the letter of the law, they did everything. And Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses them, you can't go to heaven, the kingdom of heaven. That ought to make us a little bit, a little bit antsy, a little bit nervous. I think it did in their day. Um, but we're going to get somewhere better in just a minute. So hang on with me. We're going to come around, and I think we'll get, some, we'll get to some good news. The verses we're going to look at today, it's interesting. D.A. Carson, a theologian, says uh, that these verses are among the most difficult verses in all the Bible. Uh, we're going to get to introduce this today. We're going to kind of start it off. In fact, these are kind of the thesis statement for the next section of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to jump into those just a little bit, but we're not going to get all the way through it today. Um, it's going to take us a little bit of time to, to work our way all the way through. And somehow my pages are all out of order today. We're going to get it figured out, though. Yeah, there we go. All right, well, let's read Matthew 5, and we're going to start in verse 17. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a single dot will pass from the law until it is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And skip over to verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Uh, these are the words uh, of Christ here in the Sermon on the Mount. We've been looking at the sermon. You looked at the Beatitudes and we walked through it. Last week we saw the famous passages where he says, you are the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world. And then he immediately transitions into this really hard four verses that really this next segment of, and the reason we read 48 uh, or 17 to 20 and then jumped to 48 is this, this next section of his sermon is really sectioned together. And these are kind of the bookends of, the, of this section. And so verses 17, 17 through 20 and verse 48 kind of go together to bracket everything that's in between. And as Jesus begins to teach on this, he is going to show us really the, this is the theme of the entire sermon and what he's going to be about is this idea that our righteousness somehow has to be greater than the righteousness of the religious people of that day. And so he's going to press on us and press us in that direction as he, as he unfolds this. Now, the first thing we see if you, as you look at these verses, verse 17, is that Jesus came on a mission. And he, so he starts off, he says, I came on a mission not to abolish. So he first is going to tell us what he didn't come to do. He said, I didn't come just to abolish the law. And he, I didn't come just to, just to endorse or explain, merely endorse or explain the law. But I came on a mission to fulfill the law. And so there's something that he's going to do that's positive, but first he starts with a negative. And so first, let's look at that. Let's look at what Jesus did not come to do. He's not denouncing the Old Testament or the Old Testament law. Now, this might be confusing for us, right? Because we, as we think about the way things go, people oftentimes tell me things like, you know, I like Jesus, but I don't really like the Old Testament. All the eye for an eye, tooth for tooth stuff, I'm not really sure, like the throwing stones, not really down with that, but I love Jesus. And so what is, what is the deal with the Old Testament and the New Testament, the differences that are there? What's the difference between law and grace and how do we understand that? We're not going to be able to unpack all of that today, but I want to acknowledge that those are sometimes the questions we have. Like if, if Jesus didn't abolish the law, then why, why do we get to eat bacon and they didn't get to enjoy all that glorious goodness? Right? I mean, that, like, that's a question I would want to know if I were them. I'm like, hey, hang on, because they're missing out, in my opinion. Um, but why did New Testament writers insist that the sacrifices don't have to happen anymore? Like, why don't we have to kill little animals anymore? Why do we not have to continue to follow the details of the law? Why don't, why don't we do some of the, um, the things like throw rocks at people that we're glad we don't have to do? So those are questions that I think this is acknowledging is some of the tension that's there. And they had some of those tensions there. Those tensions are not new. In fact, there's a heretic in the second century named Marcion who, was, who actually just took these verses out of Jesus' sermon. He was like, nope, I don't think Jesus said that. And he just got rid of it because he, he was trying to eradicate all the New Testament references to the Old Testament and said, these are two totally different things. We don't need to do it. Now, you don't want to do that because that gets you labeled as a heretic. And that's not, an, a, not a good thing. So don't, don't go there. Most likely what's happening here and why Jesus is saying this is Jesus, the way Jesus taught and the way he talked about things felt so different from the way the religious leaders of that day taught and, and the way it felt as they heard from them that people were asking questions. Jesus did weird things like hung out with sinners and tax collectors. 
Uh, Jesus started talking about your heart and he started talking about grace and he started talking about forgiveness and he started talking about all this other stuff that didn't really gel with who they were and it didn't really gel with a, you have to do everything just perfectly and you need to, you need to measure up and you need to do these things and so the scribes and the Pharisees began to, began to call into question what Jesus did. Jesus didn't go to their schools. Uh, Jesus didn't come up through their ranks. He didn't have their official approval. He kind of did his own thing and in that it began to ask questions and people began to say, well what's the deal? Is this Jesus just against the Old Testament? Is he against the law? Is he just a, is he a heretic that's doing his own thing? And so Jesus is, is most likely here speaking up for, this, for these reasons. In fact, Jesus' followers, it's interesting, if you go to Acts 6, uh, Jesus' followers, the disciples later after Jesus has been resurrected, get accused of the same thing. Uh, the, in fact, they... It says that um, we've heard them speak. This is when they're accusing them of, of heresy. They're saying, we've heard them speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And after that, the religious leaders stirred up all the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon one of Jesus' followers, Stephen, and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses. It says, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. So they accused Jesus' followers of the same thing. So what was the, what was the big deal about why, um, what was going on here? And we're not going to get to answer all these, but let me just say this. Jesus didn't trash the Old Testament. In fact, if you go just before the Sermon on the Mount in, in, Sermon five, in Matthew 5, if you go back to um, Matthew chapter 4, Matthew chapter 4 opens up with the temptation of Jesus in the desert. And what you see is that Jesus is going to uh, reenact in some sense what the Israelites did. The Israelites wandered in the desert for 40 years, and in their wandering in the desert for 40 years, God taught them that they did not depend upon bread alone, but they could depend upon him. And so there's this lesson that God was teaching the Israelites through the wandering in the desert that they could depend on him, they could count on him, but that their spiritual life, their whole person mattered and that they needed to learn to trust him with all of life. Jesus then begins his ministry by not doing 40 years, but by doing 40 days in the wilderness. And as he wandered in the wilderness, he fasted. He didn't eat for those entire 40 days. And each time Satan would come to him, Satan would tempt him. What did Jesus do? How did Jesus fight back against the temptations that Satan would bring his way? He would quote from the Old Testament. And so Jesus trusted the Old Testament. He said, the, the Lord has said, and he began to, to refute those things that Satan would bring those temptations. And so in that, you see Jesus reenacting. He's actually fulfilling something that happened in the Israelites. The Israelites failed in this test. Jesus was faithful in the middle of his 40-day 40 40 fast. And so he, he didn't remove the Old Testament. In fact, he quoted the Old Testament and trusted it as the word of God. But he also fulfilled the example or the thing that they had failed. He fulfilled and was able to do in his fasting and not, not failing and giving in to that temptation. And so in that, what you need to understand is that Jesus very much believed the Old Testament all needed to remain. He preached from it. He quoted it. He taught it. Uh, he, he, pre he held people to the standards of it. And so in, those, uh, in, in that, I think it's important for us to understand really what it was that Jesus is coming from. Now, let's go to the other side and talk about if Jesus didn't come to abolish, delete, trash, deconstruct, scrap the Old Testament, what did he come to do? He said, I came to not abolish, but to fulfill. Now, that doesn't sound like a very big mission to you and me, right? Because we, we don't live in a, in a first century Jewish culture. We don't live in this Old Testament world. We don't, don't live in this world that is this hyper-religious, religiously intense um, sort of a culture. And so we're like, fulfill the law, big deal. 
Well, we're going to see a little later that it is, it is kind of a big, a big deal that Jesus was doing. Uh, this word fulfill really means come into being that which the scriptures pointed forward to. And so the scriptures, everything pointed to it. Jesus was able to accomplish and fulfill all that's there. Uh, guy J.C. Ryle, old time preacher, said this, The Old Testament is the gospel in bud. The New Testament is the gospel in full flower. Christ was, the Old Testament was a shadow. Christ is the fulfillment. Uh, Christ is the thing that makes it all come to life. And he, we see this fulfillment language used over and over in Matthew. In fact, uh, Matthew 1 and 2 begin and Jesus' life begins. And you see this fulfillment thing show up over and over. That Jesus was born of a virgin, which is fulfilled in Old Testament prophecy. He was a fulfillment of the lineage of David. And so he's the, the, the Davidic king that was to come. He was the fulfillment of the promises that were given to Abraham back in Genesis. That God would bless all his people through one of the seed of Abraham. Uh, he was the fulfillment of the law of Moses and that Moses gave the law. He gave the Ten Commandments and all the, the, the outworking of the Ten Commandments. And Jesus is the only human being that ever fulfilled the law by being obedient to, uh, to and faithful to complete the law in, perf in perfection. And not imperfection, but in perfection. Uh, we, we practiced it with imperfection. Jesus did it actually in perfection. And so in those, uh, the ability to do that, and we see that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament in every way. But not just that. Did you know that the book of Hebrews is all about the fulfillment that Jesus came to bring? And it makes it clear that we no longer have to do sacrificial uh, sacrifices because uh, Jesus was the perfect sacrifice once for all. And so go read Hebrews if you want to know more about this. I don't have time to walk through more of it today, but Paul uses language about uh, the freedom from the law, that he, that he did create an end to the law, because uh, not because he was removing it, but because he fulfilled it on our behalf, which is different. It also says uh, that even Jesus' suffering was a part of his fulfillment of the law. And in fact, in Matthew 26, it says, Jesus says, all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. So Jesus coming to die for us was a fulfillment of all the demands of the law on our behalf. He did for us that which we could not do for ourselves. And that's the glory of this fulfillment. In fact, 2 Corinthians 1 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. For it, it is, uh, th that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to, the, to God for his glory. Meaning that all the, all the promises of God, all his yes to humanity, all his yes to I want you good for you, all his yes to I want you to flourish, all his yes to I want you to live in a world of perfect shalom and goodness and wholeness and fullness, all of that is, finds its fulfillment in the person of Jesus. And so all the promises that you hope for, all the things that you long for, all the things that when you have to bury a loved one that your heart beats and goes, oh, they're going to get to enjoy this now. All of those things find their fulfillment and their yes in Jesus, in his life and his death and in his resurrection. That's good news for us. So look at verse 18. And Jesus says, for I tell you this truth, uh, for, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. That all is accomplished is all the stuff we just talked about, right? And so until everything is done, none of this will pass away. But he says that uh, when he talks about not one iota, not one dot, it's a jot and tittle. It's the smallest letter. It's like the serif. It's like going from a non-serif font to a serif font. He's like, no, we won't miss one little stroke of it. Uh, of the law will be removed until everything is accomplished and until every, all my work is finished. So when will the law and the prophets become ir irrelevant? 
It says, well, until heaven passes away. That, he's basically saying until hell freezes over. It's kind of like saying that. Like, all this is going to apply always until everything's made new. And so until the entire universe, until Jesus comes back and all of the promises that he fulfilled through his death and resurrection on the cross, until he returns and makes all things new and there's a rebirth of the universe and a total remake of heaven and earth, the law still is relevant to us and it still applies. And so the law and the prophets, he says, won't pass away until, um, until God brings a new universe. But what, Jesus, what is Jesus' point? What's he saying? That the only way for us forward is not to remove God's word, not to remove everything God has said to this point, but to understand it as, Jesus, as the Lord intended it to be understood and as Jesus taught us to understand it, and then to course correct so that we find a better way. Because what was happening in their day? The, the religious leaders were teaching kind of a false understanding of the law. They were teaching a false understanding of the way God had made the world and all that he intended for us. And by, by misleading people and creating this kind of distortion of God's word, they were leading people astray. And Jesus is saying, you know what, you can't just trash the law, but you also don't want to go the way of the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders. There's a better way, and Jesus is going to show us the better way. That really is what he's doing in the Sermon on the Mount. So he offers a course correction and says, let me show you the way back to the, the abundant life, the full life, the flourishing life that I, that I desire for you. Then this, um, Jesus starts to utter this phrase, and we're, and we're going to see this over and over, and I want to touch on it very briefly here um, today. But there's this phrase that Jesus uses, and he begins to use it over and over, and he uses it throughout all of Matthew, where he says, truly, I tell you. And, and there's a, it's kind of a unique thing that Jesus does that no other religious leader in the ancient times would have spoken this sort of a way. They would say, truly, God said this, or they would begin to point somewhere else, but Jesus just said, truly, I tell you. And he speaks with this kind of authoritative first-person language in, 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 this, uh, in this, this verse, but also throughout the rest of the, um, rest of the Gospels. In fact, it appears 30 times in Matthew, 13 times in Mark, 6 in Luke, and 25 in John that he uses this kind of a phrase where he says, truly, I say to you. And he communicates something with this kind of definitive, authoritative way of talking. Now, here's the, the thing that's different about them. The scribes would say they, they were well known for dissecting the Old Testament law and they would, they would, they would work it and they would, they would parse all the, all the ins and outs of it and then they would write these giant things. They took the laws and they turned it into 600 more laws of ways you had to follow the laws and they, they would do all these things, but they were always explaining something else. And then Jesus stepped on the scene and he said, I say, and he speaks. And there's, there's a difference um, in the way in which he talks. So he's not going to, uh, in fact, he's going he's to fight back against these religious leaders over and over and over and say, I want to show you the way to true life. You know how important this is? This authority of Jesus. Um, one, we don't, we don't much like authority in our culture, do we? We don't like authority figures. We like to speak power. We like to speak truth to power. We like to turn that around. And, and it's fascinating that Jesus, though, stands his ground and just says, truly, I say to you. And he did that in front of the religious leaders of that time. Let me tell you how, how important this is. Look at the very last verses of the book of Matthew. The very last words we have of Jesus and the very last things that Matthew, in his gospel, his good news letter about Jesus, listen to what he said. All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples, followers of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. What? Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. 
Behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. What's the end of the age? Well, that's that the law and everything applies until all things are made new, right? So he's pointing the same thing. So what he says here in Matthew, where he begins this sermon and he begins his ministry, at the very end, he's still saying, look, I've got all authority in heaven and earth, and so I can speak authoritatively. No longer is he saying, go and speak all the things that, uh, out of the Old Testament scriptures, but speak what I've commanded you. Speak it in the way in which I've said it, not in the way in which the scribes and the Pharisees said it. So here's, as you kind of think through this, when we go to verse 19, we're not going to have time to, to dive into all of this today, but when you go back to verse 19, um, he says, therefore, so because the law is not passing away, because Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others will be called least, whoever enforces and teaches these will be called great. Uh, there's a lot of discussion about what that means. It can be a little bit confusing. We're not going to take time to, to walk through all that today, but there's a little bit of a play on words. He says, if you take away the smallest of these, you'll be called the smallest in the kingdom of heaven. And so whatever the, whatever exactly that means, whether it means you, you sneak into heaven just a little bit, but you're kind of, you don't you really, didn't really deserve it, but like they let you in anyway, or whether it meant you kind of get kept outside. What it means is the way in which we understand what Jesus says matters to us and to, uh, to our lives in, in a radical way. So the way in which we respond to what he says directly correlates to the way in which we'll be viewed in the kingdom of heaven. So verse 20, let's jump there because I think uh, verse 20 and then we're going to go to verse 48. And this is really where the crux of the Sermon on the Mount begin to push on us. And really, I think the thing we need to see and the thing we need to understand the most. Verse 20, where I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter heaven. Now, Jesus already mentioned righteousness twice in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Uh, he talks about uh, the, that his disciples are to hunger and thirst after righteousness and the Beatitudes. Uh, he also said that because of your righteousness, you'll be persecuted. So he's talked about righteousness twice. And now he says, unless your righteousness surpasses, excels, goes beyond, is deeper than the, the Pharisees, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, for his disciples, um, this would have been something that would be really hard for them to hear. Because Jesus is basically telling them, unless, unless you're better than the super, super uh, religious holy people, you're not gonna, you don't have a chance. And so they would have, their jaw would have dropped. They'd have been a little nervous. They'd have been going, like, they'd have been started sweating going, man, I don't know that I've got a chance. And honestly, when I hear that, uh, some of you probably heard that and go, well, I guess I'm out. You know, like peace and you're going to go on, you're going to go ahead and wander out the door. Um, where do we, what, what do you think Jesus is really getting at here? In fact, what we see with the, the Pharisees is they probably wouldn't have disagreed with anything Jesus said up to this point. They would have said, yes, Old Testament. Yes, you don't, don't abolish the law. Yes, don't do all those things. The only thing they would have disagreed with Jesus on was that he was the one who came to fulfill them. But they would have been pro-law. They would have been pro-Old Testament. They would have pushed all these things. In fact, they were well known for being the, the biggest defenders of the law and the proponents of the law as a guide to righteousness. And so if you've got these people that are, this is their whole life that they devoted to, and Jesus says, you better, you've got to excel. You've got to surpass. You've got to do more, exceed, and go beyond them. Um, that can make us nervous. Now, the righteousness that Jesus is talking about, though, um, is going to be different. And here's what I want you to understand was Jesus wasn't saying you better play the religious leaders game better than the religious leaders. You better score more religious points than the religious leaders. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is actually going to turn everything upside down. He's saying, no, I'm playing a whole different game than what they're playing. 
I want to show you an entirely different concept of what I mean by, by the wholeness of life and, and the spiritual life and what you're supposed to be about. So here's what I want us to look at. When you, when you see this verse, this becomes the theme of really the next section and then the, really the whole Sermon on the Mount. So we're going to unpack part of this today and then we're going to come back. And what we're going to see is Jesus is going to introduce this topic here kind of like a thesis statement in an essay. Any of you students coming to the end of school, you tired yet? Ready to be done? Like you know what a thesis statement is? It's that statement that you say, here's the statement that's really boring that tells you what everything else is going to be about, uh, but it's going to be really direct and really straightforward. That's sort of what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, let me just tell you the one thing I need you to know. And then he's going to actually give us six examples throughout the rest of the sermon where he says, let me show you what this looks like. And he's going to begin to deal with our relationships. He's going to begin to deal with our lust. He's going to begin to deal with our anger. Uh, that's going to get rough. He's going to begin to deal with our marriages. He's going to begin to deal with our righteousness and our prayer life and our religiosity. And he's going to begin to say, let me show you how what I'm trying to get you to understand applies to all of those different areas of your life. And so we're going to unpack that in the weeks ahead. And that's where we're going to go. So in uh, this, you, he starts this section with uh, verses 17 to 20, and then he jumps over to verse 48. And he says that you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. I want us to deal with that one because here's what I realize for you and for me. When you hear that word perfect, is that an uplifting thing or a discouraging thing for you? And the first thing I think most of us feel when you say you must be perfect in our world is you just go, oh, I'm out. I don't have anything. I'm not sure what to do. I don't know, I don't know how to handle this. And yet those are the words that Jesus spoke, right? So how are we to understand that? Here's what, we need, what you need to understand. In, in the Bible translation process, the, the word that's translated perfect is a word called teleos. And teleos really has a spectrum of meaning. As you understand that meaning, perfect is a legitimate uh, kind of a translation of that. But oftentimes what happens in translation is we try to do this one-to-one -one correlation and take one word in Greek and make it mean one word in English, but the reality is there is no English word that represents really the fullness of what teleos means. And so teleos could mean perfect, but it could also mean mature. It can mean complete. It can mean whole. It can mean fullness. It can mean singleness of mind and undividedness. And so it has a spectrum of meaning and all those things go in there. Now, here's what we know from the rest of scripture. We are called to be holy and I'm not minimizing or reducing that whatsoever. We see over in the scriptures, none of us is holy. There, there's only one who's been sinless in the universe. His name is Jesus. And he died and rose again for us. And so our faith and our, our trust in him is built not on my goodness, and not on my ability to have measured up in every regard, but my faith is built upon the goodness of Jesus, the fact that he measured up and he was a sacrifice and through his death and his atonement for my sins, God made a way for me to enter into his kingdom. So that's the ground level that we all know. So what is it that Jesus is talking about here? Because when I say perfect, what I know for most of us is you hear, I guess that means I never could have made a mistake. I guess that means I've got no bad check marks on my report card. I guess I've never stubbed my toe and, and let something slip, right? Like, I, let, I guess I've, I've never lusted or I've never fallen. I've never drank too much. I've never done anything. And as long as I've done any of those things, I guess that means I'm out if, if what you're saying is true. The, I want you to understand there's two things going on. There's grace because Jesus atoned for all that. 
But there is also this invitation that the Sermon on the Mount is going to call us to that I think is a little bit different than that. And so I want us to talk about what is it that Jesus and how he's using that word here. I would actually think this word might, as far as, not that perfect is wrong, but that for you and I to understand what Jesus is calling us into, a different translation like wholeness might be better for us. That if you are holy his, as he is holy yours, that's the invitation. That's what we're being called to. Let me show you why I say this. In the Old Testament, there's all this language that goes through and, and shows the Deuteronomy 6. You see the Shema. We read it earlier. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. It's this whole, like giving my whole self to the Lord. Uh, you see Psalm 119. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the way of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies and seek him with their whole heart. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. So you see this kind of Old Testament idea, and that's what that word perfect is actually trying to capture, is that same concept of your whole being, your whole heart, everything being poured into this. You see in the New Testament, Colossians 1.28, it says, Him we proclaim, meaning Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That word mature, it's the same word. So the word that's translated perfect in Matthew is translated mature here. See it again in Colossians 4.12, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Ephesians 4, you see that same word used again. It says that uh, we're to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, we're supposed to grow up and build them up until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ. That each time in those passages where you see that word mature, that's the same word that's, used, that's translated perfect here. So here's what I'm saying. I'm not saying you need to doubt your translations. You need to worry about all that. I know we're getting into some technical stuff today. But, here's, but I just don't want you to walk away thinking when Jesus says perfect, he's not calling you into a life of trying to make sure you never do anything wrong and it's just checking the external box. Why do I say that? Throughout the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, what's Jesus going to do? He's going to attack the way that the scribes and the Pharisees talk about the law. How did the scribes and the Pharisees talk about the law? They were focused on the external performance of things. They didn't get to the heart. In fact, when you begin to unpack what the Pharisees and what the religious leaders did at the time, um, you see that they would have been fine with this idea of perfect obedience on the external and on the outside. They would have gotten uncomfortable when you talked about whole heart, when you talked about your, your motives, when you talk about everything that, is, that you are to be about. Um, in fact, what were Jesus' criticisms of the Pharisees? Uh, Matthew 23, Jesus lifts these, these woes to the Pharisees. And in fact, the, some of the things he talks about, he says, you are like whitewashed tombs, meaning you're really pretty and shiny on the outside, but there's death on the inside. He's going to criticize them. And he says that uh, your, your religiosity is showy, meaning you pray and you want everyone to see you give money and you want everyone to know how much you gave, but you're not really, your heart is far from me. That you, you seem to have the externals all lined up, but you're not, your heart's not mine. You don't really belong to me. And Jesus is going to continue to, to push against them. He says, you follow the, the, the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law. You see one of these in the rich young ruler, this guy who comes, he says, Jesus, what do I need to do to go to heaven? And um, he says, well, keep the commandments. And he's, because he knows, he's kind of pushing on him. He knows that he's not going to measure up. He's not going to do everything. And so in this, this situation, he pushes on him and says, you have to keep all the commandments. He goes, well, I've done all those. What else? What do I lack? And she, which... Has any of us really kept all the commandments? Jesus knows, ah, this guy's not really seeing it. 
He's, he's kept the externals, but his heart is not really understanding what, he's, what we're to be about. So he pushes on and says, well, go and give everything you have to the poor and then come back and you'll be fine. And in that passage, he talks again about the wholeness. Then you'll, then you'll not lack anything, you'll be whole. Meaning my heart, your heart will be totally mine if you're willing to do that. So here's the difficulty for us as we begin to look at this. We begin to understand this whole idea and it becomes this intimidation factor for us of thinking, man, I'm never gonna measure up. I'm never going to understand. And Jesus says, you know, the, the thing I don't want is for you to, to focus on the externals and, and make sure that the cup is clean and the, and the dish is clean, but that you're not really clean on the inside. And so he's gonna push on us there and he's gonna call us to this life of wholeness. And so what is Jesus calling us to do? When he's saying that our righteousness has to surpass the Pharisees. And we're gonna unpack this the next few weeks. So in some ways, this is just a teaser. We're just gonna, we're just gonna give you a little bit of a teaser and tell you what this looks like. And we're gonna begin to unpack it uh, over the next few weeks. But here's what I want you to know. Jesus wants you. Jesus doesn't just want your religious performance. Jesus doesn't want you just to measure up and do all the right things and check all the right boxes and have this external pressure of religious conformity that pushes you into this box that makes you do all the right stuff. Jesus doesn't want you to do that. Jesus wants you. And yes, you know what? If Jesus has your whole heart, then that's gonna have ramifications for every area of your life. If Jesus has your whole being, if, if you are undivided, if you are wholly his, if you are completely and perfectly get loyal to the Lord, then that's going to have ramifications for every area of your life. That's going to have ramifications for your money, for your anger, for your sexuality, for your marriage, for your parenting, for uh, the way in which you love your neighbor, the way in which you do work, the way in which you interact with those around you. It's going to, have, it's going to affect everything. But Jesus is going to start and he's saying, no, unless the heart is right, then the externals don't get it. Do you, see where, do you see how important that is? And so Jesus is saying, this is about a relationship that I want to have with you. And because of that, I want all of your heart. And, and, and when I have all your heart, then I'll also have your obedience. And that will be a good thing. But there's also uh, one last thing I just want to highlight today. And then we're going to unpack. And the thing we're going to unpack and you're going to see over the next few weeks is our world has actually done the exact opposite. We've actually inverted the entire thing. Because what, what happened in the religious culture with the religious people of that day is they started with the externals and said, let's clean up the externals because they believed in, in, a, in a basic religious hierarchy of the universe and the way in which things work. So they're like, well, let's just work as hard as we can to clean up the outside. And Jesus is going to push on them and say, yeah, but you're dead on on the inside and there's nothing that's there. Our world's actually done the exact opposite. Our world said what's inside us is good. Our desires, our feelings, our emotions, everything we want to be is good. And so that what authenticity and what true uh, spirituality looks like, our world says, is to take all the stuff on the inside and let it match what's on the outside. And, and, and then begin to live on the outside in fulfillment of what's on the inside. And so if what's inside is good, then you should just let all that out. And what we're fighting against in our world is anything that would push down and, and cause us to do something differently. That's what we're gonna see over the next few weeks. So I want you to come back. I know that's just like, I mean, you're just like putting your toe in there. In some ways it may be a little bit, dis, a little bit confusing to, to unpack. We're gonna unpack that for you over the next few weeks. And I want you to see how relevant what Jesus says right here is to every single issue in our lives and to all the debates that we're having in our culture right now. And, and it's incredibly apropos to everything we're talking about. And so I wanna end with this. When you look at this, at this passage, 
You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And verse 48 closes that out. If you go back at the beginning of this, uh, this section that we looked at, verse 16 uh, says, in the same way, let your light shine before the uh, four others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. Um, what's the unifier between those two things? That you have a father in heaven. And what, he, what Jesus wants us to understand is all this is ultimately, it's a relational thing. That it's not just a religious thing. The scribes and the Pharisees have made it a religious performance sort of a thing. But he's saying, start with your father in heaven. Trust that because you have a good father in heaven, he's got your best interests in mind. This is what true flourishing looks like. This is what the abundant life looks like. This is what uh, the life that, that I meant and intended for you looks like. And so start there. And because of that, Learn then to walk in obedience. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for um, Jesus and his words. And Father, this is, um, this is a difficult text and a lot of stuff to wrap our brains around. And Father, we just pray that, um, Father, I just ask that you, would, that, that you would highlight what it is that you want us to see here today. Father, that um, anything that's been muddied or confusing or a fog, Father, would you just by your spirit break through and highlight the thing you want our people to understand today. Uh, Father, I pray that you would help us understand what it means to live whole lives, that our whole hearts might be yours, that we might be undivided, um, but singularly belong to you. Father, I pray that, that, that what's on the outside would look like what's on the inside. And Father, that, that, that all of our lives would be impacted by the goodness of who you are and of your desires for us. Father, help us to trust you uh, moment by moment, day by day, until that day when, um, when all is accomplished, when all is made new, and when we are whole um, without, without any interruption. Father, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, well, we're going to move to communion as we do. I've got uh, really just two questions I want you to consider and just ask that you lean in and think on these um, as you prepare your heart for communion. One is, are you depending on the fullness of Jesus' provision? Is your best and only path to full human flourishing? Are you, are you depending upon him um, to provide life for you? And what is the Lord saying to you today about your whole heart, whole life, about being a whole heart, whole life follower of Jesus? Thanks again for joining us for this redemption sermon. For more resources and information about Redemption Church, visit redemptionokc.com and follow us on social media.